Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one of our Not Artificially Sweetened podcasts. Thank you for our listeners who have joined us and who have sent through questions, comments, and ideas that will help shape and inform our podcast going forward. Remember that you can listen to this free service brought to you by the CDE Teaching and Learning Academy on our preferred social media platform, Spotify. Good morning to you, Michael Brown. Hi, there, Stan. How are you today? I am good. I'm anticipating a busy winter. Here we are in early autumn and just a timely opportunity not to forget the flu vaccine for mm -hmm. people with diabetes their carers, their extended families, the list of those who would benefit from a simple preventative strategy and an inexpensive one at that is endless. For sure. And over and above the COVID pandemic that we've come through, really, for those listeners out there, do not forget you have until mid-June to have the optimal time to get your flu vaccine. I would add to that, I visited my pulmonologist yesterday. I have asthma and I went for my annual review and he said that he's got four people in hospital currently with influenza A and they are really sick. So I think sooner rather than later. Michael, you made mention of asthma, another common chronic medical condition. I hope your checkup was all good, mm -hmm. but you went because presumably you were well. Yes. And all too often in the diabetes clinic setting, when people with diabetes and their carers come for consultations, we strike up a conversation, as we've said on this podcast many times before, with matters that go beyond mere blood glucose management. And something that's commonly seen in the diabetes clinic, now always uh, nice to bring this to the fore because I see a lot of this each and every day, are shoulder complaints amongst people with diabetes. Mm -hmm. Pretty neglected and often dismissed as being arthritis or wear and tear, old age, as people will often say to me. But in fact, the implications for shoulder problems in diabetes are completely overlooked. And on this podcast, we've historically brought up things like hearing loss, which we now appreciate can occur as many as 50% of people with type 2 diabetes and frozen shoulders exceptionally common. Absolutely. And it's such a debilitating condition and it takes so long to heal. So I think if people are coming to a consultation, it's worthwhile bringing it up. Don't realize how important the shoulder is in almost everything you do, whether it be dressing, partaking in personal hygiene, food preparation, even being able to extract your blood glucose tester and put a strip in for many people is uncomfortable. Sure. And last point on this I want to raise is how uncomfortable it is for people to sleep on that shoulder down and the disruption of sleep and the implications that has, you know, so many matters. In fact, Michael, you know, there's a lot of evidence now supporting the fact that poor sleep is in fact the new smoking, as you mm -hmm. could say in inverted commas and the adverse effect that has on mental health. Lovely. And I think that segues beautifully into the next thing I wanted to say. This week, I had occasion to interact with someone who has been diagnosed with severe depression and was recommended to go into hospital for about 30 days. And the person just phoned me to chat about it. And in talking to him, I asked, how do you sleep? And he said, well, maybe two hours a night. And that to me was a huge problem in that seeing a clinical psychologist for the last two months, the vegetative symptom of sleep never came up. And there's a chicken and egg situation. 
is this person depressed because they're not sleeping or are they not sleeping because they've got depression? So what we're seeing in the post-COVID world is a massive increase in mental health disorders. Together with that, in South Africa, we're seeing a massive brain drain among psychologists and psychiatrists. And I think it's going to become more and more important for both South Africans and people worldwide because we're seeing this trend worldwide, this growing mental health burden to become more empowered to take the necessary foundational lifestyle steps to ensure that they avoid mental health disorders. And one of those is sleep. And we have talked about that before, the importance of sleep hygiene, a sleep routine, bringing down the lights before bed, not indulging in coffee. Basically, after midday, I've seen quite a few papers in the last few weeks talking about the half-life of caffeine being six hours. So that means if you have a cup of coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon, nine o'clock at night, you've still got half of that dose of caffeine running around your bloodstream. Simple things like that can go a long way to preventing, never mind treating mental health disorders. And on top of that, a paper came out recently, quite a nice systematic review, analyzing a number of trials, pointing out that exercise or physical activity should be the first choice in treating depression. What do you think about that, Stan? It's a great paper. It came out of a group from Australia. I happened to catch sight of that historically. I always used to think of that aphorism that laughter was the best medicine. But in <laughs> fact, you look at this piece of information here, a very well put together study looking at exercise, whether it be resistance exercise, weight training, stretching exercises, walking, yoga, Pilates, all forms of physical activity had a profoundly positive impact on actually treating and remediating many of the symptoms of depression. So in the setting of the diabetes clinic, Michael, the bedrock of treatments always have and always should include stress structured physical activity, mm. really a timeout. And here are the mental health benefits that accrue over and above the usual glucose improvements that one sees. Absolutely. It gives us great pleasure to introduce our studio guest for this week. Before I introduce her, I'd like to give a little bit of background in that this is going to be a more clinically focused session. And this person belongs to a profession that probably numbers, I'd say maybe, and she can correct me if I'm wrong or right when she comes in, but probably around 200 members across the country in a country of 60 million inhabitants. And maybe of that 200 registered cohort of her professionals, only about 30 are involved in diabetes care. Furthermore, analysis of service utilization within the private healthcare sector shows us that among people with diabetes, only about 2% of people with diabetes utilize this annually recommended screening service. That to me is a huge problem. We see also ophthalmologists only sitting at around 25%. But this profession with a huge ability to screen for and to treat life-altering and life-threatening potential complications of diabetes only gets about 2% of airtime in the management of diabetes. So with that, I'd like to introduce podiatrist Ray Bernstein. Welcome to our show. And Ray, I'd like to ask you, as we habitually ask many of our guests, how did you get into diabetes? Good morning, Michael, and good morning, Stan. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, so how I got into dietary. Growing up, I always knew that I wanted to be involved in some medical form of tertiary education. And firstly, it was physiotherapy, which was my first choice. And then I was in school with a young lady who was a couple of years younger than me. And we became friendly and we were chatting. And she actually mentioned in passing one day that her father was, in fact, the head of the podiatry school at the then Dornfontein Witz Technicon. And so that piqued my interest. And I 
I said, podiatry? What is that? I don't even know what that means. And she said, oh, it's got something to do with feet. Anyway, fast forward a few years and when it was time to choose my university and potential further training after school, I considered podiatry and went and met with a very, very well-known and well-respected gentleman by the name of Andrew Clark. who We know Andrew well. Yes. And Andrew Clark at that time was the head of the podiatry school Mm -hmm. and a small chat with him and I was sold. And so, of course, that began my podiatry training. And then luckily enough, after I'd qualified, Andrew at the time was working at the Center for Diabetes in Houghton. And he actually invited me to come and work with him. And that is a short fast forward to now, 20 years later, I'm just privileged enough to still be involved with the CDE and working in the Houghton branch. And yes, that's how it happened. And then my interest in diabetes and feet is also piqued with the fact that there is a history in my family with diabetes. And so people in my family are also people living with diabetes. And that's just really how it happened. And I'm just happy to be able to work with people with diabetes and helping them with their foot needs. I like the idea, Ray, that you are the quintessential teacher and student and a previous guest on our show, Omi Naidu, who himself had an interest in healthcare peak largely as a result of the implications of his family health and well-being, wanting to really make a positive difference. So I think Michael's opening point is is that the under-recognition of the podiatrist in the broader interdisciplinary care team in diabetes cannot be underestimated enough. And you're full morning, noon and night because the demand for foot care services is so great. So really, again, big thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, Stan. Thank you. Yes, just to confirm Michael's earlier information with regards to the shortage of podiatry services in the country, we as a profession are in fact the smallest registered body with the Health Patients Council. Mm. That's quite a thought. And of course, then that there are so few podiatrists who take an active interest in treating people with diabetes. So let me put that into perspective then, Ray. If there are so few people with podiatry, I would sit here and imagine two scenarios. One, the preventative approach that people with diabetes and their caregivers can do such that the podiatry services become a need for particular matters. And then the more extreme form when harms perhaps to the feet have already occurred. Let's break those into two different sections then. A person with diabetes who is well, who has two well-functioning feet and is in otherwise good general health. What's the role of the podiatrist then in the person with diabetes? who's essentially well, and I say that in quotes, before trouble sets in. So I would say that it's probably just as important as the role that we play in a person with diabetes who has complications. Because I like to obviously stress with my clients or people who come and visit me that even if they do not have problems, we need to assess their potential risk for problems and empower them to know and understand what could potentially happen to them with regards to their diabetes and how it would affect their feet. So an annual screening is the bare minimum that should be happening with a person who doesn't have any particular problems. But remembering, Stan, that also people with diabetes don't only face problems with regards to their diabetes or potentially problems with their feet as a result of their diabetes. They could have foot problems that could affect any person. And so I think it is important, even though they don't have specific diabetes-related foot problems, a person who is essentially quite well, it is important that they do see their podiatrist once a year for their screening so that we can explain to them why it is that they are always needing to know the status of their feet in terms of risk so that they can identify themselves and empower themselves to know what to look for and then seek the help that they need should those problems or complications or challenges present themselves. 
Ray, most people who go for mammography know what to expect. If you go for your eye checkup, you know you're going to look at a chart with letters and numbers. You spoke of an annual screening. What would that entail for the person coming to see you? What's an annual screening made up of? Right. So before I can explain what the screening is made up of, I think it's important that our listeners who are perhaps not in the medical field understand, and those people with diabetes, understand how diabetes can potentially affect one's feet. So we always talking about management and staying within range of your target blood sugar levels. So long-term diabetes or challenges with maintaining your uh, good control of your sugar level can potentially result in nerve damage and blood flow problems to one's feet. And so to put it quite frankly, the worst case scenario is that a person with diabetes could potentially long-term land up with numb feet so your alarm system is not working effectively. And so you're not obviously warned of any potential problems. And then no blood coming down to your feet or very little blood. So should a problem happen, of course, you may not feel it because your alarm system is not warning you of that problem. And then, of course, you're sitting with a wound and problem that needs to be healed. And then there is insufficient blood flow, which can help to heal that problem. So a risk assessment is just that. We need to assess the person's feet in terms of the integrity of their blood flow to their feet, and then, of course, the nerve supply to their feet. So we're checking that they can still feel everything that they should be able to feel, that the right nerve impulses are being transmitted and the right messages are being received, and then, of course, that there is adequate and healthy blood flow to those feet. I'm smiling as I say this because what you're actually saying is that when a person with diabetes comes for a health assessment, even if they don't land up seeing the podiatrist as part of a, a access, given the small number of service providers in the country, they can look forward to having to get their shoes and socks off at least once a year, perhaps if their healthcare team want to do that more often. But it's amazing how often we see people, their carers come through not having had their feet and are often surprised when you instruct them, go through and take off your shoes and socks. Always much more difficult in winter when people are wearing mm -hmm. stockings or the like, or fitted elastic stockings for other health matters. And you have to encourage them and say, look, we're going to be looking at your feet because if you don't look at your feet, any sorts of trivial matters may become more harmful. Ray, before we get onto some of the more complicated and perhaps unfortunately better known complications of diabetes, what are the commonly seen things in feet in the well person that a person with diabetes or the untrained eye might be dismissive of and say, oh, you know, that's nothing. It's a bit of thickened skin or yeah, my feet are always cold and my bed partner always moans. Where are the red flags that you're going to find on the screening test that really become more relevant in due course? So you mentioned some thickened skin. I would look at saying that a red flag would even be something like dry skin. Dry skin, which is a common problem with people with diabetes because their moisture regulation of their skin may be affected long before they have frank complications. Dryness causes splitting and cracking of one's skin. And any break in the integrity of that huge organ, our skin, is a potential for a problem in terms of an infection. So it could be dryness of your skin, changes in the structure or architecture of your foot. Some ladies back in the 80s used to love wearing stiletto heels and they've molded their feet <laughs> into all kinds of odd shapes. And so a foot that has changed architecturally, there could be some red marks and rubbing, which could cause a blister, which would be seemingly inconsequential. But any kind of opening to your skin could be an issue or even, as you mentioned, some thickening of the skin. Because thickening of the skin in terms of callus or perhaps even a corn indicates that there is an area of pressure. And areas of pressure, obviously, the skin would thicken to try and protect itself. But then, 
of course, that protection could become more of a foreign object. So it could almost be like walking with a stone inside your shoe, but in the form of thickened skin on your foot. So those are the kind of things, dryness of the skin, thickening of your skin, red marks, areas of friction, ingrown toenails. The catastrophic impact of foot harms in people with diabetes, from what you've described, Ray, are imminently avoidable. They are seen coming a mile away. And in effect, when I see things in the clinic like this, it's almost always because the feet haven't been inspected before, or the person with diabetes, their family, their caregivers haven't had sufficient knowledge provided to them to have recognized something early enough, or it's been dismissed by their healthcare provider as being unimportant or of a trivial nature, only too late. And how often have we heard of that, Michael, uh, that an ounce of prevention is worth, you know, more its weight in gold than anything else, none more so in the setting of diabetes. Ray, you've brought out some great points there. First in my mind is that the role of the podiatrist is largely and should be largely preventative in nature because that is a theme that goes through specialized diabetes care. We are more interested in preventing problems than treating them. So yes, while we are able to treat ulcers on the foot, wouldn't it be so much better if we can prevent them? But I want to go back to a standard list of recommendations that are found worldwide. If you basically log on to any diabetes site, you're going to see a standard list of recommendations. Inspect your feet daily, bath in lukewarm, never hot water, moisturize your feet, but not between the toes, never treat corns or calluses yourself, wear clean, dry socks, shake out your shoes and feel the inside before wearing, never walk barefoot, and very importantly, probably the most important, take care of your diabetes. One of the important things you said earlier was that people need to know why. And that's the biggest problem I have with lists like this. They don't get to the why. The foot is an architectural masterpiece, well over 100 bones, tendons, ligaments, muscles, nerves, blood vessels, skin, and so on. And that's why it takes basically a four-year degree to qualify as a foot specialist. Can you take us behind the recommendations to understand the physiology and the anatomy and why we would, in a more preventative manner, and then obviously in a treatment manner, provide these kinds of recommendations? Sure, Michael. So that list is just a list and it can become just a list if the person with diabetes doesn't understand and I think essentially when one understands what it is or why they have to do something they buy into that a lot better and we find then that cooperation and self-care and self-management and self-empowerment becomes the key thing. Mm. I always tell people who visit me, the time that you're in the office with me is the only form of control I have on you. And I don't like using that word control because it isn't about that. Mm. So we have to use that time so carefully and make sure that when the person is leaving, they've left with the right information and they've bought into the idea of how they are going to go out and manage and help themselves in terms of their diabetes care with the knowledge that we've given them. So the list, yes, inspecting one's feet daily, looking for red marks, things, changes in shape, new thickenings of skin, all of this because the changes that happen with the damage happening to one's feet in terms of nerve supply can be so slow and insidious in onset that one doesn't even know that they have lost the feeling in their feet. And like we said earlier, some people haven't the privilege of seeing a podiatrist or having their feet inspected or assessed on an annual basis. And so oftentimes people will come and visit and say, oh, but there's nothing wrong with my feet. And we do this assessment and we find that they didn't even know that they had lost the feeling in their feet. So yes, inspecting feet daily to see if you can see something that you didn't feel. 
Washing your feet daily, of course, personal hygiene is an important thing. Making sure that you're rubbing cream on your feet, top and bottom, but not in between your toes, because we don't want to cause moisture between the toes, which could promote a fungal or bacterial infection between those toes, Mm -hmm. especially in sweaty feet. The other thing on the list would be checking your shoes and socks before you put them on. And actually, importantly, checking inside your sock as well, not just your shoe, because there could be something in there that you are walking around with all day and you didn't even know that it was there. So these are the kind of things. It sounds like a a silly list, but it is really to make sure that we stop any potential injury, harm, or something that could then set the person with diabetes up for a future problem, even if they are well, and even if they don't have any complications, Mm. because there is a decreased immune system. You know, people with diabetes, their immunity is not great. So we want to avoid all of these things from potentially causing harm. Mm, Absolutely. For me, the last recommendation on that usual list of take care of your diabetes is probably the most important. And that goes back to the root of all the problems in feet in the context of diabetes. And essentially, if your blood glucose management is not at an optimal healthy level, you set up a constant cycle of inflammation and of damage to the proteins in the blood vessels and the blood vessels supplying the nerves. So eventually what you get is decrease in circulation of blood to and from from, very importantly, to and from the tissues of the feet. And that means reduced delivery of oxygen and nutrients to the tissues and reduced removal of carbon dioxide and waste products from those tissues. And then also damage to the nerves, which serve three different functions. One is a sensory function. So that's to protect us. And we talk about in diabetes and in foot care of diabetes, loss of protective sensation. Maybe you could say a few words about that just now that would guard us against injury. Then there's the motor component of our nerves, which helps us to locomote, to move, but also to maintain the musculature that holds the foot together and gives it structural strength. And then finally, the autonomic nerves that are responsible for regulating the circulation of blood through the feet and keeping our skin intact and moist and repaired. And so those, I think, underpin the list of recommendations that we often hear. So maybe if you could take us a little bit further on that journey from the diabetes side, and maybe why if you've got an ulcer on your foot, you can use the most expensive biological dressings available. But if your blood glucose management is not where it should be, you're not going to go anywhere fast. Is that right? You're absolutely right, Michael. And you've explained the physiological side so well. I guess this is an opportunity then to talk more about a foot that's in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. We've touched on feet that don't have issues or how to avoid those problems. But for a person with diabetes who has not managed to adequately maintain suitable blood glucose control for a number of years is going to face those problems. Let's talk about the nerve supply first, where you spoke about our sensory nerves becoming affected. So what happens in the context of an ulcer is that there's a chain of events that need to obviously happen for somebody to develop that ulcer. So the sensory component would be perhaps that As I spoke about earlier, one's alarm system is not working properly. So they don't have that protective sensation where Mm. either pressure goes unnoticed or pain is not alerting them to something. So let's use the example perhaps of unnoticed pressure. 
most of these ulcers are formed in terms of a loss of sensation. So Joe will be walking around, his foot structure has changed because his motor nerve involvement has reached a point where the architecture of his foot is not maintained adequately because those muscles are not receiving the correct information and support from the nerves that they need. And so structurally, his foot changes There's a new bump underneath his foot that's developed because there's a shift in architecture. And so then his skin steps in to try and help that process. And that area, which is not accustomed to having any pressure, starts to thicken to protect itself from that pressure. Then the thickening exceeds what is normal. And so then it's like taking a small pebble and sticking it on his foot. And he's walking on this pebble of hard skin, which Mm -hmm. is now pressing on the bone underneath, which is obviously adding to that pressure. And then this pressure goes unnoticed. The skin then with the autonomic nervous system involvement is unable to regulate its moisture it's so thick it's dry it splits it cracks or the pressure causes a small bleed underneath the skin and then there's a blood blister that develops Mm. and then where does that blood go it's got nowhere to go and so then the skin breaks open and an ulcer has now formed And then, of course, we're wanting that to heal up. And should there then be a blood flow issue to that, it's not going to obviously adequately supply that area. But yes, as you most importantly said, lack of adequate management of blood glucose levels has not given those internal environment the right conditions in which to then heal that up or manage that area. And his body is unable to obviously sort that out on its own. But leading up to it, the insufficient management of those sugar levels is what led to that in the first place. So you can see how it's so interlinked with nerve supply being affected and the blood flow being affected all land up causing these catastrophic events that then, yes, we work very hard on trying to treat and mitigate further problems. But of course, yes, the cornerstone of that would be adequate blood glucose levels so that the internal environment in which we're asking Joe's body to work is ticking the right boxes. I want to be cheeky here to both of you. I recognize the checklist that we've spoken about and all of the descriptive phenomena that Ray has spoken about the feet, but your eyesight has to be good enough to be able to assess this. Because how often, if you have already developed a complication of diabetes, the first thing that may have occurred is you may have decreased vision. Mm. And we're asking these people to inspect their feet daily in between their toes. So you have to be mindful, I suppose, in the clinical setting that the person can see Mm -hmm. and that they can get down there. Because if you have an older person who's got back or hip issues, difficult to bend down and cut their toenails, let alone to see the underside of their feet. So I just want to put in a punt there for the healthcare providers to ensure that uh, the advice that you're given can actually be given in a rational manner is not just handed out as a checklist to do this. Absolutely. Because all too often, particularly in the setting of hearing loss, people are embarrassed perhaps to acknowledge that kind of inability or that deficit. And I think we can go a long way in enabling our patients to help themselves look after themselves, provided we've given them adequate knowledge. I agree, Stan. And that certainly was not a cheeky comment. It reinforces the need for the diabetes team approach to management in that the podiatrist certainly cannot work in isolation. The podiatrist needs to be supported by a diabetes trained doctor, nurse educator, dietitian, maybe even a physiotherapist, which we may discuss in future weeks, and so on. And that diabetes care is very much founded on a holistic approach. It cannot be focused on one particular thing at a time. Michael, may I also then add, and such a good point that Stan raised, you know, it's so easy for us as the healthcare team, which are all trying to support our person with diabetes that visits us. But I think then in that context, lack of eyesight, lack of hearing, or those kinds of challenges that our people face 
even a frozen shoulder, as you spoke about in the introduction, mm-hmm. the lack of mobility, getting down there, using one's arm, which has this frozen shoulder to work to help themselves with their feet. I think a very important extra person in this context then would be a family member or carers who are then helping these elderly people. You know, they need to be actively incorporated and involved in that because if the person is unable to assess their feet themselves or look out and follow that checklist, it really is important that we as those healthcare providers make sure then that we are making use of somebody else who can then also assist our patients. And perhaps they need to then also be given the necessary information and the why and why not as to what it is that they are going to do in terms of helping take care to another level. How many podcasts Michael and I have hosted where our own teaching list of the letter C has come up, C for continuity and care and community as we did in the previous podcast. But let me say this, there is no C more relevant in foot care than the C for cost. Because if you want to see costs go up significantly, it's those patients who come and they seek from me letters to the medical aides to provide for these extremely expensive silver impregnated dressings and these more modern biological types of dressings. So if you want to go a long Mm. way and say, and not have to have an out-of-pocket component because in my experience, medical aids are not receptive to foot care funding. More's the pity mm. for that because of the implications that it may likely land up with an amputation. You know, drive home the message of preventative care. And then my last point on this is don't forget, smoking cessation is probably even as important as blood glucose management. And all mm. too often, mm. the adverse impact of ongoing smoking in the presence of foot complications mustn't be overlooked. Mm. And to take what you said further, Stan, for me in terms of the funding of podiatry, I've had clients say to me, I see so much value in visiting someone like Ray, and yet they charge so little. And this is a genuine quote. I would pay at least twice what I do pay for the visit. That's how much value I'm seeing. Now, if that's a person with diabetes, and obviously no one wants to increase their costs of care, but I think that our clients with diabetes are recognizing the immense value added by the podiatrist to their care. And I want to turn this back to you, Ray. We have a very unfiltered nature in these podcasts. We say it as it is. And I'm going to say it. I don't think that podiatrists are adequately refunded for their expertise and for their time. So one question is, what would you like to say to medical aid funders and to public policy makers on reimbursement for podiatrists? And secondly, how do you see the future of podiatry in South Africa? And I expect quite a hard response on this, but how optimistic are you for the future of podiatry in South Africa? And what do you want policymakers and funders to know? Those are two great questions. And I guess the issues that I'm passionate about, our remuneration and reimbursement for the work that we do is really disappointing. Mm. Because yes, we play an extremely important role in the diabetes care team. And a couple of years back, I was fortunate enough to carry the responsibility of being executive chairperson of our podiatry association for six years. And it was back then already such a challenge because the problem is with us being such a small profession, I don't think that we are taken as seriously as we need to because we don't have the numbers. Mm. So the issue comes in with firstly letting these policymakers see that all albeit that we are so very small in number, there needs to be a shift in the way that we are perceived. I think that the issue is further compounded with the fact that, as you mentioned, there are few podiatrists who are actually actively involved in working with people with diabetes. So it's sad to say that a lot of podiatrists are seen as toenail cutters or people who just make or, you know, help people with their wheel alignment, or we are put into that 
role as carers who are luxury, right? But in the context of diabetes, we are essential, 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 essential. I cannot (laughs) say it enough in terms of preventative care and working so hard to cut those costs of those awful complications that can potentially happen. Mm. So, yes, I would appeal to decision makers and people who are in those roles to really relook at what a podiatrist really does and what our scope of practice honestly does entail and cover with particular reference to chronic disease management, you know, not even just diabetes, arthritic patients, the list goes on. And that, I suppose, is my response to what would I like decision makers to know. And then my hope for podiatry in South Africa is that, you know, this is another sad thing. The fact is that there is one podiatry school on the entire African continent, and that is at the University of Johannesburg. And so I'd like to encourage that obviously something is done there where there are more facilities where people can be trained as podiatrists and we can grow our profession. And then the impact can be greater, not just with the service that we can offer, but then perhaps with greater numbers, we can can have a bigger say. Perhaps regards to the amount of podiatrists there are, maybe the shift needs to be to the value of what podiatry can offer. And perhaps maybe if that shift happens and the decision makers can see that, then there may be a change in remuneration and the correct acknowledgement of what our services are. I think that speaks very well into the advocacy theme that we have conveyed on a number of these podcasts face for the person with diabetes and the families and carers of people with diabetes. But from what you've passionately said there, Ray, certainly needs to have an advocacy component from the organizations themselves, recognizing that intrinsic value. I think it's appropriate at this time to hear this week's advocacy message from Sweet Life Diabetes Community. Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. There is always so much going on in our heads, and it's not always easy to put it into words. I met two people with diabetes for coffee last week, and one of the women said to us, Ugh, I'm so tired today, I went low last night. And because all three of us were living with type 1 diabetes, we immediately understood what that meant. That meant she'd woken up in the middle of the night, it had taken a while to fall back to sleep, she woke up kind of feeling like a car had hit her. Her blood glucose was whack for the rest of the morning because sometimes you go high after a low in the night and sometimes you stay persistently low after a low in the night. She was double guessing what she'd eaten for breakfast, she was double guessing what she'd eaten for dinner the night before and figuring out if it was because of that or if it was because of exercise or if it was because she'd had a stressful day or if it was because she'd had a relaxing day. (laughs) She was able to say this one sentence to us and we could understand all the extra things that were going on in her mind. But it's not always easy to be able to explain that in words. So when in doubt, give anyone with diabetes the benefit of the doubt. They are dealing with so many extra things that are completely invisible to the naked eye. I think that last line touches very nicely, not visible to the naked eye, the unspoken component in that sense. And I guess for a person with diabetes, your feet, you know, to bring the analogy full circle here today, your feet are giving you a hell of a lot of clues as to what's going on in your circulation, what's going on in your nerve function, a barometer, so to speak, of the management of diabetes, not just for the now, but for the history. So if there was a plea for me today for the healthcare workers is get the person with diabetes to take off their shoes and socks at least once a year. And for the person with diabetes, 
diabetes and their families and carers make sure that the person with diabetes feet are examined at least once a year or more often if needs be, because if that can't be done, then we're certainly going to be in for a whack of complications, higher costs with a very, very constrained workforce that are already probably on the brink, tying up then very nicely with our mental health component, Michael, the adverse effect of ulceration and the stigmatizing component of that, the isolating component of that, and God forbid the amputation that follows on, and that's certainly not doing anybody's mental health any good. And it can all essentially be prevented. Absolutely. And I think also the immense burden carried by people with foot care problems. Maybe, Ray, you could say a couple of words around that. For example, someone who needs to offload pressure off a compromised area of skin on one of their feet, and then they still have to get through a day, they have to pay the bills, they have to do the shopping. Wow. Michael, it's so true. You know, the challenge is immense. And we have to not lose sight of the fact that exactly as that sweet life said, people who have to offload an ulcer, how do you drive your car if you have to be wearing a moon boot, for example? Then it becomes an extra five minutes of taking the boot off when you get in the car and then driving and then stopping and then putting it back on to walk into your office if you're going to work. The questions all the time where people feel stigmatized, mm. oh, why are you wearing that boot? Or why do you have that dressing on your foot? You know, you become this beacon, which is so noticed. You feel so noticed and so vulnerable. I think the mental aspect is huge. There's that self-doubt or people carry shame around diabetes, which they never need to have to, or that internal dialogue, what have I done, which has landed me in this situation, or where did I go wrong, or feeling let down. So yes, it is huge. The, the mental side mm -hmm. of these really bad foot complications, it can be very impactful on a person's daily life, very challenging for them. And oftentimes during that consultation, it's not only about how you are treating that wound, for example, what you're putting onto it or what your next decision needs to be around the care of that foot. Sometimes it's also just listening to our clients and just trying to understand where they're coming from and factoring that then also into what care we are going to then be suggesting because the, the recipe may be the same for everybody in terms of treatment, but it's not always suitable. It has to be an individualized approach. Well said there. It's time for a short break to listen to a message from this week's podcast sponsor. The professional staff of the CDE Pharmacy have been caring for the specialized needs of people living with diabetes for nearly 30 years. We supply the widest range of blood glucose sensors, insulin pumps and infusion sets and we stock a wide range of food products and supplements to support your healthy nutrition needs. You can find the CDE Pharmacy at 81 Central Street in Houghton Estate, Johannesburg. We are open from 8am to 5pm, Monday through Friday. If the CDE Pharmacy is a step too far from you, or if you prefer shopping from the comfort of your own home, please visit the online store of choice for people living with diabetes, CDE Online. There, you can view all our products at your leisure and have them shipped direct to your door nationwide. Don't miss our weekly specials, only at cdeonline.co.za. Thank you, Centre Pharmacy. Dan, when you were chatting about cessation of smoking, I'd like to just add something to that, please, if I may. Go for it. Dan, so important that you mentioned cessation of smoking. I forget where I actually read this, but I use it often when I am trying to motivate my clients to perhaps consider trying to stop smoking. Did you know that nicotine is a very powerful vasoconstrictor? Mm -hmm. And the average impact of that constriction to one's blood vessels after one cigarette is six hours. And that is significant. 
It really is. Not even for a person who has complications or challenges from diabetes, but just in general, you know, the thoughts of being in constriction where your blood vessels are slightly narrower than they should be for a period of six hours is quite frightening. That's something to consider. Never mind, everybody carries on about the lung problems and all of those things that could develop as a result of smoking. But that was interesting for me with regards to the impact of nicotine on our blood vessels. I can corroborate that, Ray. If anyone would like to Google thermal imaging of a smoker's hands post a puff, within about seven seconds after the first puff, the hands on a thermal image will go from a bright sort of white uh, look to almost black, showing the immense vasoconstrictive properties of nicotine. And that automatically will then restrict delivery of oxygen and vital nutrients to the tissues. And of course, removal of waste products that will inhibit repair and healing of tissues. As we play out this week, Michael, just a summation of what we've heard from Ray today. If anything, coming to see the podiatrist is essentially a timeout. I know that podiatry plinth well myself. Come in, lie back, literally, and have care provided to a part of the body that is a little overlooked most times. It's an opportunity to have somebody offer a thorough and professional appraisal of what may ultimately lead to harms in due course, but needn't have to if good management over the long haul is embedded. And I think that is a key message for us today that let's keep the podiatry and the preventative mm. components. Sure, these are experts in wound management and the like, but wouldn't it be better if the bulk of their work was taken up never having to deal with these ulcerations, never having to deal with the harms that may occur over due course? Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in studio with us today. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank you both so much as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed being part of your podcast today. And I'd just like to add to what Stan said and just remind all listeners that you know we're blessed with one pair of feet and they need to last a lifetime never a truer word said ray thank you so much for joining us for me the takeaway message is that the podiatrist is such an underappreciated member of the core diabetes care team underappreciated by funders underappreciated by policymakers underappreciated by people with diabetes what I desire to see is that utilization rate for podiatry screening go up from 2%, way up to 80 to 90% or more where it should be, because this is where we can prevent. This is our opportunity to prevent. And I challenge any healthcare actuaries out there to factor in the cost of that annual podiatry screening versus the cost of an amputation. And if you don't get it, then I'm sorry, we are in trouble. With that, let's hope for a better future. Let's hope that this podcast episode makes a difference in the lives of healthcare professionals out there, policymakers, funders, and ultimately the people who we together serve, people with diabetes. So we thank you for being with us again this week. We wish you a blessed week ahead, and we can't wait to bring you another life-changing episode next week. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. 
Views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap.